Hello Ministry of History fans and thanks for tuning in to my second guest podcast. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing a master student, a blogger and an expert on all things Victorian, it's Shauna. Shauna is joining me today to discuss the Great Exhibition of 1851, a fabulous display of industry and valuables from across the world and a not-so-subtle flexing of Imperial Britain's muscles. We'll discuss the origins of the project, its displays, its meaning, its legacy, and of course, the fabulous Crystal Palace that was constructed to host the event. If you recognise that name, Crystal Palace, then you may be interested to hear this story. Before we get into all of that, I need to ask you again to leave a review. I am sorry that I have to keep asking, but it really is one of the best ways to get the pod to grow. If you have a spare moment, please leave a review for this podcast. In fact, let me just make it easy for you. Just hit the five star button and don't even think about it again. I promise I won't bother you any more about it. I also might be a bit cheeky and point you towards my donation page on the Buy Me A Coffee website. I've said before, I don't have delusions of becoming fabulously wealthy by doing this blog and podcast, but there are costs. I have to pay for equipment, I have to pay for maintenance, I have to pay for the domain name on my blog. Like anyone else, I need to pay for those costs and make this project sustainable in the long term. Follow the Buy Me A Coffee link in the description of this podcast and donate whatever you feel like. Any donation you can make really would be hugely appreciated. If you want to read up a little more about the Victorian era, or indeed any era in history, then check out the blog. It's the Ministry of History on Google, and it's actually the top result these days. Finally, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Ministry History, all one word, no of in the middle. You'll be the first to know about new blogs, new podcasts, and all the rest of it. But in the meantime, before you do all of that, here's Shauna talking about the Great Exhibition. Shauna, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Um, Now, you love talking and writing about the Victorian era in general, um, but today you're here to talk specifically about the Great Exhibition of 1851. Now, um, am I right in thinking that you're doing your master's thesis on this? Yes, that's right. So I'm currently looking at the purpose, impact and legacy of it. So I'm covering literally from the start right to the very end. And even beyond the end, if you're talking about legacy. Um, yeah. That's good, because uh, that's sort of what we want to cover today. Um, but I suppose before we get to the legacy, I guess we start at the uh, beginning, um, the origins of the Great Exhibition. So I guess my first question is, um, is there any precedent for it? Or does Britain just sort of come up with the idea itself? Well, I think Britain would very much love to say that they came up with the idea themselves. Um, 
they were very much inspired by France in particular. So in the 19th century, we see a lot of these kind of national exhibitions going on. Um, but Henry Cole in particular, so he's a massive key player in the Great Exhibition, was going to see these exhibitions in France and thought it would be a great idea for Britain. So he joined the Society of Arts in around 1846. And from that point onwards, he was really trying to push the idea of this kind of event in Britain. Um, it didn't really take off. He tried and he tried, but they just weren't having it. So he decided to go for a set of smaller scale exhibitions instead. So these took place in 1847, 1848 and 1849, but they got more and more popular as they went on. So it was from around 1848 that the Society of Arts really noticed that such a big exhibition could be a possibility. So they really started to push for it from then. So it was kind of that that set the groundwork for an event in Britain. I see. So, um, uh, yeah, like you said, I think we some people would uh, like to imagine it was British, but um, they'll be incredibly disappointed to find out that it was the damn French who uh, came up with it. <laughs> it's um, always the of French. all people, yeah. Um, so you sort of uh, drifted into my second question here, but I'll ask it anyway. So Henry Cole, um, I mean, what is he? Is he a government? I mean. I guess the question I wanted to ask was, is this a private venture or is it state sponsored? Is there government involvement? And sort of is Henry Cole um, a member of the government or is he sort of a private citizen? Yeah, so Henry Cole at the time, you know, he was a civil servant. He was an inventor, an educator. He really pushed for the notion of the arts, especially. Um, so at the time, it wasn't really a state-sponsored thing. Um, it took a lot of individuals to come together to push for this event. Um, so the Society of Arts themselves actually started seeking funding for it. So it was all based on voluntary donations and things like that. It was never, they relied solely on government money or anything like that. They really worked as individuals for this event. I see, but... Um Am I right in thinking that Prince Albert had uh, something to do with this, the organisation of this? Yeah, so this is always a major point with the exhibition. So for some reason, the credit just gets pushed completely on Albert. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love that man. He, <laughs> does, he does deserve some credit, but it really wasn't his idea. So they actually had to really try to persuade him to get on board with it. I think it was around 1848, he really just wasn't buying it. He didn't think there was enough ground for him to tie himself to it. So they literally just had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually he cracked and then he became a massive player in the event. I see. Um, so he's a massive player. Is, um, is Victoria involved at all? I think her biggest involvement probably would be with the formation of the Royal Commission for the exhibition. Um, this event really was sort of Albert's baby compared right. to what it would normally have been Victoria's. Um, so she did form the commission to help them plan it and sort of deal with everything to do with it. But that was probably as far as her involvement went. I see. Um, but... Uh so Victoria, Victoria is not so involved, but you, you sort of refer to it as Albert's baby then. Um, but of course, 
and I guess Albert is basically sort of the king. Um, but um, even though he's just called Prince Albert, but um, Victoria Albert, they're not uh, dictators, are they? Um, sh- don't they have to persuade the prime minister or the government of the day um, to uh, to support the idea and um, link to that? What is the political situation like in Britain at the time? Is there a relative peace that allows for a huge project such as this? Um, or is it a case of there's a, you know, some rebellious people are getting too many uppity ideas and a big event like this is a way for the state to show its authority? Yeah, no, definitely. Getting government support was obviously the most important factor at this point of time. Um, they really had to sort of make connections and Henry Cole was very good at doing this. I think from around 1847, he was already very much working his way through everyone in the government to try and get this support. But a really interesting point, I think it was 1848 or 1849, Albert actually said to Henry Cole himself that he believed he should be the one to deal with cabinet ministers. So we very much see his influence coming into play here. Um, But I think the biggest political situation, obviously you mentioned sort of rebellion and things. So over the last 10 years, I think, there was obviously a lot of chartist uprisings and things like that. So that was the biggest factor that would make them worry about such an event. Um, And Albert really pushed for working class involvement for the exhibition. But obviously, because of the Chartists, a lot of people just saw the working classes as mobs. So Mm -hmm. it was a really uncertain time as Mm -hmm. to whether they should actually be involved in the event or not. So that was the biggest factor there that they worried about. I see. So Albert has to sort of thread quite a delicate needle uh, in a way. Um, So the idea for the exhibition is conceived, um, but now they need to decide where are they going to host it? So just talk me through the choosing of the venue and, uh, more importantly, the design of a vast glass palace. Yeah, so the design is probably my favourite part of the exhibition. It's probably the most recognisable feature of it as well. Mm -hmm. But before they could even pick a design, obviously, they had to pick a place. And early on, really, in the planning, Hyde Park was given as a possibility um, Albert actually wanted a building in Leicester Square, but I just don't think it would have been possible at the time. No, uh, as a Londoner myself, I don't see uh, Leicester Square really uh, being big yeah, enough. Uh, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Mm. Um, he was very much talked out of it. Um, he was basically told that the public wouldn't want it, they'd turn against him and things like that. So they were very much pushing for Hyde Park and it was actually the death of Robert Peel that pushed the government to support the idea of Hyde Park um, because he wanted it to be in Hyde Park as well. So because obviously he very tragically died, they thought that the best way to sort of honour his death would be to pick Hyde Park. Um, But with the design then obviously it was a very hard task because it was going to be such a big event they needed the building obviously to be incredible and they'd actually set up a competition in the april of 1850 um and i think about 250 entries had been sent in of various different designs and i think the one they were actually edging towards was one similar to saint paul's cathedral 
Oh, okay. So obviously it was. Would that have been it glass would be hard as well? To imagine a building like that. No. So this one was actually going to be a brick building. I see. Um, so it wouldn't really have had the same sort of effect, no. I don't think, if they did go for this one. Um, but the design they actually went for was one that wasn't submitted as part of this competition. So Joseph Paxton came up with this design one day. He was literally sat in a board meeting for a railway company and he was bored. So he started <laughs> just doodling on this bit of blotting paper and he just came up with this design for a glass palace. So he showed it to Henry Cole one day and then it was kind of from that point onwards that they really started to take it into consideration and then I think it was the July of 1850 they announced that this was the design they were going for and it was as you said this huge glass palace yeah I mean it, it must have been absolutely incredible I mean I've been to Hyde Park uh, many many times myself I'm sure a lot of our listeners have and uh, I mean it's it's almost unimaginable to think how that crystal palace would have looked in the middle and missed Especially at that time when, you know, technology, well, technology as we know it is sort of in its infancy. I mean, it must have been absolutely incredible. Um, just give us more details, I suppose, and, you know, exactly how big it is and how long does it take to construct it? Yeah, so it is really hard to picture now. I mean, I would absolutely love to have seen it. Yeah. You wouldn't have missed it from a distance, you know, no. it was really prominent. You knew it was there. So it was around 1,850 feet long. Um, inside, it was probably about 128 feet high. So, you know, it was a very big building. Um, the plan itself, I think it took about two weeks to become a fully detailed plan. And then from that point onwards, it took about nine months to construct. I think at its peak, they had about 2,000 men working on it. So it was quite a big project for them to try and do in a short amount of time, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's an unimaginable uh, project. I mean, funnily enough, I actually work in construction in my day job. Um, and uh, I mean, just thinking about the uh, the effort, the manpower, the materials you'd need uh, and, you know, the intricate design to, oh, I mean, it's unimaginable. Yeah. Um, uh, unimaginable, <laughs> sorry. Um, so the palace is built and it's open to the public on the 1st of May, 1851, am I right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, is it free of charge um, or is it expensive? Because I've read that it's billed as self-financing. Um, so I suppose there must have been some charge to enter, but um, I mean, you said earlier that Albert was keen on having the working class involved as much as possible. And I suppose it can't be too expensive. You don't want to price people out, do you? No, that's right. So I think when you consider the exhibition, the prices of the tickets probably is the biggest factor in deciding its success. Um, so to begin with, the tickets were very high in price. They, I think it was something like a pound for the first two days. And then for the following three weeks, it was five shillings. Um, they only had around 200,000 people visit in those three weeks which to us sounds probably like quite a decent amount but I think they were hoping for a lot more than that at that point but obviously because the tickets were so high the working classes just couldn't afford it they couldn't justify it so they were sort of shunned out of the event 
So about three weeks in, the Royal Commission decided to change it because they needed the working classes to attend. So they introduced what was called a shilling day. So as you can gather from the name, tickets literally became one shilling. Mm -hmm. And I think this was Mondays to Thursdays and Sundays, but it was by far the best decision that they'd made. I think they gained about four and a half million shillings during the time it was open because so many people flooded it on those days and the working classes just attended in their masses you know they went mad for it yeah i can i can imagine it's uh, it's, i mean uh, lots of things have changed but marketing hasn't changed so much uh, just uh, a shilling day and getting as many people in um yeah. so uh okay so say i'm a victorian man and you're a victorian woman and we walk into this vast crystal palace um what can we expect to see what is actually inside the palace i think the question for the time is what wouldn't we see they had around a hundred thousand objects on display so you probably would get yourself lost in there and a lot of the notes from the time sort of diary entries and things say that really you needed two or three visits to make the most of it because one trip just wouldn't be enough but what was interesting about the palace itself was the way that it was divided so it was split into two and one half was dedicated just to britain and the empire the other half was dedicated to the rest of the world so it was quite telling already that britain and the empire took up an entire half and everyone else was just expected to cram in there and it was split into four main themes. So we see machinery, manufacturing, fine arts and raw materials. So as you expect, you literally can see anything and everything. So we have things like stiletto umbrellas. We have folding pianos, you know, really random little things that you wouldn't expect to see at an event like this. And then You've got whole galleries dedicated to carriages, steam engines. There's a stained glass gallery, which would have been absolutely beautiful. And then with that rest of the world, you've got Canada sending fire engines that have painted panels that show scenes from Canada. We've got thrones from India, urns from Russia, France sent silk, which was really popular. So you could literally see anything at this point yeah i mean yeah for a world that's not as interconnected as ours uh you know for people walking in uh to that exhibition it must have been absolutely incredible uh i've used the word unimaginable uh, many times already during this podcast but it must have been just that for people who probably had never left england uh, a lot of them um yeah so uh, yeah go on no, I was going to say, I think that was a major part of the exhibition. It was sort of deemed as you got to see the world from your doorstep. So like you said, a lot of people wouldn't have left England at this point. So they really were getting to experience the rest of the world for probably the first time. And it would have been completely breathtaking to them. Yeah, um, completely. And I guess um, sort of just on that note, um, who actually does visit? Um is there, does this sort of coincide with the rail system in Britain? And does that sort of allow people from up and down the country who perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunity to get down to London uh, so quickly before um, to actually have that opportunity? Um, and also, 
outside of Britain, I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that this is sort of a not-so-subtle flexing of the empire's muscles. Um, and I suppose one of the main aims is to show off to the world. So does it get international visitors as well? Yeah, definitely. So the railways in Britain played a huge part in the amount of people that went to the exhibition at the time. So it was really around the time of the exhibition that we see railways being used sort of for tourism. So Thomas Cook, who obviously is a very well-known name to everyone nowadays, really, really pulled in on this fact. So it was here that we saw excursion trains um, coming into play. So people could literally buy a return ticket. I think they were given about two weeks going there and back um, to go alongside with the ticket to the exhibition. So we saw around this time working class men taking their wives and children to the event. So it was really seen sort of as a holiday. People really loved the fact that they could just go down to London on these trains for the exhibition. So it was a really, really popular means of getting there. So I think that definitely, if it wasn't around, I don't think as many working class people probably would have gone because at this time obviously a lot of them were based out in the countryside and things so it was this move into the cities that we began to see around this point and it really did pull in international visitors so there was a quote in Michael Leapman's book and he said that within the first couple of weeks London was swelled by between 50,000 and 100,000 foreigners so they really did pull in sort of everyone and anyone. It was the event of the year, like you did not want to miss it. Yeah, and the event of the year, not just in Britain, but uh, across um, the Western world, I'd imagine. Um, so uh, so it runs from May through the summer and it closes in October, uh, is that right? Yes, that is, yeah. So was it a success? And um, if it was, why didn't they do it again? Yeah, it was a massive success. I think at the beginning, everyone sort of already deemed it to be a failure, but they just proved everyone wrong. So as you said, it was open from May to October. And in this time, they had 6 million people visit. So it's a huge, huge amount of people to be flocked to London for this. And they made a profit of £186,000 at the time. So in today's money, that obviously would be millions. Yeah. So it really was successful but I think the thing to remember is it took so many years for them to plan this and so much went into it I just don't think it was something they were going to rush to be doing again and exhibitions didn't stop obviously after this but I think an exhibition on the scale that they did wasn't going to be a possibility say the year after or something it really took a lot of work to get this to happen in the first place. I see. So just the, the sheer scale of it sort of made it almost impossible to recreate. Um, but again, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the scale of it must have just been incredible, uh, especially for the mid 19th century. Um, so it closes down. Um, what happens to the palace itself? Because, you know, it wouldn't take a genius to work out. There is no longer a Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. Um, so what happens to the palace? Um it has a pretty sad end, doesn't it? 
It does, unfortunately. So as soon as the exhibition finished, I think everyone was obviously aware of the fact that this building had been created just for the exhibition. So they were aware that it would obviously have to be going. And a lot of people actually began to protest about it. They didn't want it to be taken down. They wanted it to stay. So what they actually did is they removed it from Hyde Park and they rebuilt it over in Sydenham. So I think it was between 1852 and 1854 they were rebuilding it. So it stayed there then for a very long time. You know, they used it for exhibitions. It was used for entertainment purposes. It became a shopping mall at some point. They really used it for everything. But unfortunately, like you said, it did come to a very sad end. So one day in 1936, somewhere in the building unfortunately caught on fire and it spread fast obviously it's a glass palace it's not really made to withstand fire um so it completely burnt down to the ground and like you said unfortunately it's no longer around yeah um funnily enough i have actually been to the site of the crystal palace in uh, sydenham because um my mum's actually from down that way so i've got a few uh cousins and stuff down there and on on you can actually still walk around the site uh that the palace stood on uh after the exhibition and um so you can sort of get an idea just of how vast it was um but of course unfortunately there is no longer any glass there um so final question uh before i let you go um is there a legacy of the great exhibition and uh if so what is it yeah, no, definitely. I think one of the best things about this exhibition is that it really laid the foundation for the exhibitions that would follow from this point. So obviously, like I mentioned, there had been loads of exhibitions in this century anyway, but it was really from the great exhibition that this push for industry and the development of it really came into play. So from this point we see massive exhibitions in Paris, Dublin, New York, places like that. They really played on this idea of bringing everyone together. So I think that's one major part of it. It really inspired the future exhibitions that we would see. But I think the biggest legacy that we see now is the way they use the profits from the exhibition. So the Royal Commission and Albert in particular wanted the money to be used for educational means so they ended up buying 96 acres of land in South Kensington so now that area holds museums such as the Victorian Albert the Natural History Museum sort of where the Royal Albert Hall is so this area that obviously everybody knows and loves when they go to London is actually a direct result from the exhibition so that's probably the best thing that we got from it yeah i mean those museums they aren't actually too far from hyde park the original site of the great exhibition um especially um it's all quite modern around there now but the natural history museum is a big imposing victorian building um but yeah it's interesting that all of that is directly linked to uh henry cohen his wacky idea for an exhibition Uh, yeah definitely so, um, I mean, that was great. Uh, I'm sure the audience uh, are thrilled to have learned some more about the Great Exhibition. Um, would you mind telling the audience how they can uh, find some more of your stuff? Uh, what's your Twitter account and uh, how they can find your blog? Yeah, sure. So my Twitter account is at History Shauna. 
Um, my blog unfortunately doesn't have the same name exactly. Twitter doesn't let you have long handles unfortunately, so they've let me down there. Mm. So my blog is shaunadoeshistory.wordpress.com and my Instagram is also shaunadoeshistory. I post a lot about the exhibition on my Instagram, so that's probably the best place to go if you want to learn more about it or just see what the exhibits were and things like that. Okay, perfect. I mean, I'll put the links um, to all of those in the description of this podcast. Um, but in the meantime, Shauna, thank you very much and uh, have a nice afternoon. Yeah, thank you. That was Shauna talking about the Great Exhibition. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you follow the links to Shauna's blog, Instagram and Twitter account in the description. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.